0: Well, this year we've been studying the book of Hebrews, and if you're wondering, we're going to be in Hebrews through, uh, I think, the end of May. We're going to take a little bit of a a sidestep when we get to chapter 11, the Hall of Faith, and take that in three messages rather than trying to just kind of summarize everything in one. So we're in Hebrews for the rest of the semester, and and as we get into our passage tonight, we're in message two of kind of a three-part miniseries that's focusing in on the the superiority, the greatness of the sacrifice of Jesus. Why Jesus' sacrifice for you and I is better, uh, as we talked about last week, than all of the sacrifices that took place in the temple. The diagram is is behind me on the uh, the screen there. But you remember if you were with us last week, maybe you weren't just to, to refresh our memory. Ladies, you are letter E up there. So that's as close to the, the Holy of Holies as you can get. You're you're stuck outside in letter E. And guys, we are in, uh, if you're an Israelite, that is, we are in D up there. And And you'll notice there's Still quite a bit of room, space between us and the letter A, the letter of A being the, the Holy of Holies. And In the Old Testament, with the sacrificial system, and even during the time of Christ, you needed the priest to take the offering into the, uh, to the, the altar on your behalf. You couldn't go in there and just pray and just enter into the presence of God whenever you wanted to, like we've already talked about in Hebrews chapter 4. There was this, this necessary uh, sacrifice that had to be offered on your behalf. Specifically, uh, the the pinnacle of that was the the day of atonement, which we've talked about. And in fact, last week, we talked about that day in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 9, where it says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Look, if if this had any effect, which it, it did externally, at least, the author, you remember, last week said, How much more? How much more valuable? How much more effective? How much more powerful will be Christ's blood, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? On our passage tonight, He's going to continue the focus on the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice. That it's better. That it's better than the blood of bulls and goats. That is better than the old system. But. Tonight he's going to begin to explain why the, the sacrifice of Christ is better because of what it means for you and me when it comes to our hope in a remedy for what's gone on in our past, what is going on in our present, and what we hope will happen in our future. See, Jesus' sacrifice has so much to say about all three of those arenas of your life. If you think about sitting in a doctor's office and hearing the doctor come in with the test results and sit down and and say to you, it's not good news, you have cancer. Maybe some of you have heard that. Maybe some of your loved ones have heard that. And you think about cancer, and and then the doctor says, but there's good news here because we have a treatment for this. This is a, a treatable form of cancer. Well, when you think about the treatment for cancer, something that can be deadly if left unchecked, you want to eradicate the whole thing, right? You want to deal with everything that has been growing in your body, all the cancerous cells that have been there, and then you want to deal uh, beyond that with anything that's currently, presently developing and growing. Even as you're sitting in the doctor's office, you're thinking to yourself, man, this, these cancerous cells are multiplying right now, and I, I, let's get started. Let's get the, the treatment going so that my present body is dealt with. And then you want to make sure that that cancer is never going to ever come back to threaten you once ever again in your entire life. Well, much like that, y'all, in fact, more so than that, because here's the, the reality for us. Spiritually, our plight is far worse than any cancer that could ever impact anyone on the face of the planet. You could hear you've got stage four lung cancer and you have no hope, you've got two weeks left, and yet sin is a bigger deal than that. And when we're looking for how do I we deal with sin? How do I deal with my past sins? How do I deal with the sins that I've already committed? How do I deal with the sin that maybe you're carrying in tonight, feeling the weight of that sin? And you're feeling the guilt and you're feeling the condemnation. How do I, how do I get rid of that? And then you're thinking about okay, I'm, I'm looking at this next week and I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm probably going to sin this next week because it's, it's part of who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm in the flesh and my flesh is strong. And I, I know even if I set myself, and maybe it's going to be unintentional sins rather than any big ticket sins, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to sin this next week. What do I do with my present sins? And then maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, what about my future? What does my sin mean for my future? If you've ever had those questions, the answer is found in Christ. And the answer is found in the sacrifice of Christ. And the answer is found in the passage that we're going to look at together tonight. Look at verse 15. It says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Hold on a second. Let's back up. We just read the verses that just preceded this. How much more, verse 14, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, because Jesus has done that, therefore, the author says, he is the mediator of a new covenant. He goes on, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance Since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. Again, the whole theme tonight is focused on the death of Jesus and what it has to do with our past, present, and future. We're beginning by saying, look, Jesus' death has instituted, has inaugurated, has ushered in for us a new covenant. And it says there he's the mediator of a new covenant. Well, a mediator is someone who, if, if you think about it in the courtroom, is, is going between two parties, trying to bring reconciliation between two groups of people. Uh, the difference here is, uh, from an earthly standpoint, the mediator is going to go to both parties and say, hey, you know what, guys, we, we both could give, we both could compromise to come to an agreement that's going to work out best for everyone, right? Well, Jesus is not that kind of mediator because God's not going to compromise, right? God's standard for everyone, for all time, forever and ever, is holiness. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's God's standard, and he's not going to compromise on that. So when it says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, it doesn't mean that he's going to God going, God, can you just soften up a little bit on this whole holiness thing? And then coming to us going, hey, guys, could you just be a little bit more holy? And I think we could all come to a common agreement here. No, what he means is he's the mediator in the, in the sense that he's the one that's bringing this covenant to us. He's mediating it. He 's the one through whom it is coming, and specifically through his death through his sacrifice in hebrews seven two Jesus is called the guarantor of a better covenant that 's the idea here he's the one that, that we can rely on he's the one that we can trust he's the one that we can have confidence in about this new covenant right because he's the the guarantor of that new covenant but this probably sounds obvious to you and hopefully it does to have a new covenant there must have been what uh an old covenant. There must have been an old covenant. And, and here's the thing, the, the old covenant has something to say about you and me. Even though we're not Jews, any of us I don't think in this room are native Israelites, national Israelites here. Uh, even though we weren't part of the whole covenant proceedings at Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were delivered and the law of God was handed down, the old covenant still has claim over us. And in in this way, the old covenant established God's standard, that standard that I referenced a moment ago. You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that standard was not just for Israel, but that standard was for all of humanity for all time. And so you and I were born essentially under that idea, under that stipulation, born under the law. Meaning if we wanted a good, right relationship with God, well, what we had to do is have a perfect track record from the moment that we were born. Well, let's set John Calvin and total depravity aside for just a minute. And let me just ask you right here where you sit tonight, anybody in the room want to lay claim to a perfect track record of obedience? No, and me neither, which means the old covenant has something to say to us. Because the the apostle Paul says in Romans chapter three, verse 23, for what all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6, 23 comes the bad news that the wages of that sin is death. Okay, death. And here's where we're getting into the problem. And see the The problem in us sinning and death being required is this. In the Old Testament, God graciously allowed the sacrificial system to stand in for the death of the Israelites. In other words, he allowed them to bring the bulls, bring the goats, bring the birds, and offer those as a sin offering to him, and he took the death of the animal as a substitute for the death of the sinner. But the problem, as we talked about last week, is that that only atoned for the sins in the the past and didn't really deal with. Well, what if I sin after I leave the the temple? And what if I sin next week? And what if I sin the week after that? Well, then I'm gonna have to keep going back and keep going back and keep going back. I'm gonna have to keep offering blood of bulls and goats to atone for my sin. See, the old covenant, y'all, has a claim on us and it's the same claim. We should die because of our sin if it weren't for Jesus. Because notice back in verse 15 again, what it says there. It says this, it says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Notice this, since what? Since a death has occurred, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Y'all, there's the good news right there. Since Jesus' death, Redeems us from the transgressions, our sins committed where? Under the first covenant. That means all of the sins that you have sinned from the moment that you were born to this moment tonight, okay? If you have repented from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior tonight, y'all, here's the good news. Jesus' death has atoned for all of your past sins. Your past, in other words, is dealt with. And that's point number one tonight. Jesus' death took care of your past. And so as you sit here tonight, if you are in Christ, you can say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for me. I, I'm not fearful of, of being punished in hell. We talked about that last week. Remember the illustration of the, the communion cup and that one tiny little drop of juice that's left in the crack at the bottom of the cup. You know, God's cup of wrath was completely poured out on Christ for you. His death fully satisfied God's wrath so that you no longer fear that. So you no longer have to sit there and say, well, what about my past? If you're in Christ, God has forgiven your past in Christ because those sins have been placed upon you. Jesus. Y'all in Hebrews 8:13, we read something that's pretty astounding. We already covered it, but let me just remind us of it. In speaking of a new covenant, which is what we're talking about back here in chapter 9, also, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Wow, that is strong language that the author uses here. He takes the Mosaic covenant, which is pretty significant, right? Pretty massive, pretty major. For thousands of years, that is how God interacted with his people was through the Mosaic covenant. And in Hebrews 8.13, it says that Jesus has now made that covenant obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old, and it's ready to completely vanish away. Well, let's talk again a little bit about that first one. We've hit it a little bit tonight, but uh, here's some things to think about there. Stipulations under the first covenant. Unless you're wondering, okay, well, maybe the first covenant wasn't so bad. Uh, Maybe you would want to live this way. Deuteronomy 28.1, if you faithfully obey... Okay, so we see right away that there's conditions in this first covenant. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Okay, so if I want the blessings of the old covenant, that requires that I am faithfully obedient to the law or to put it the way that we've already mentioned a couple times tonight, Leviticus 11.44, For I, the Lord your God, am, for I am rather the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. If I want to be in good standing with God under the old covenant, I need to be perfectly obedient to the Lord. Holy, unblemished, without stain, without defect. Consecrated completely to the Lord. Well, what happens if I'm disobedient? Deuteronomy 28, 15 says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments, notice the standard here, if you don't do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you, and then he goes off to list the curses, and they're not anything that you and I want anything to do with. So if I want a good relationship with God under the Old Covenant, that means I need to be perfectly obedient to the Lord, faithfully obedient to the Lord. And if what happens if I don't obey? Then I have all of the curses that he lists out in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Chief among those being separation from the Lord, right? And that's why the sacrificial system was instituted. Because God knew that none of his people were going to be able to measure up to that standard. And so in his grace, he... Instituted, created this system where they could bring an animal to die in their place. Let me ask you tonight how are you doing on the whole be holy as I am holy thing? As you think about your past, as you think about the sins in your past, the sins even just last week, how are we doing on that? And let me ask you another question. If your relationship tonight with God depended on the old covenant, how would you be doing right about now? How would I be doing right about now? Y'all, you know, we take for granted, we take for granted the great news that you and I have been freed from the old covenant. We read Hebrews 8.13 that Jesus has made the old covenant obsolete and we read that and we go, great, awesome, next, what, what, let's go. But that is such phenomenal news for us. That he has taken away your past sins. That the old covenant no longer has claim on you. That that Romans 6.23 is no longer a verse that condemns you. But it's a verse that reminds you of the grace of Jesus and the grace of God at the cross. Because the demands of the Old Testament, the demands of the old covenant, they still had to be satisfied, didn't they? It's not as though God just was like, okay, forget the old covenant then, let's go with the new covenant. In fact, that's a question that oftentimes the world asks and they often say, well, why couldn't, why did the, the, why was the cross necessary? Why couldn't, couldn't God just forgive sin and let it all go? Well, the answer to that is, well, because then God wouldn't be a just God. And I think all of you in this room would agree with that if you play it out in a certain circumstance, right? Let's say somebody that you love was murdered and you're in the courtroom waiting for justice to be done and the judge looks at the defendant, the one who murdered your loved one, and says, you know what? I forgive you. Go go and be free. You're going to object. You're going to go crazy. Why? Because you're going to say, wait a minute, no, justice has to be done. There was no payment offered for the crime committed. Well, guys, for God to forgive our sins, payment has to be offered. And that's the cross. That's why Hebrews 9.15, back in our text, says this, that the death occurred for us, right? Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus paid the price that you and I owed and that was our life. That was death, death on the cross. A death that should have been our death. Jesus took and died on our behalf. And you think, okay, well, so he died. Yeah, this is another area that we need to remember and not take for granted what took place on the cross. Jesus was alive for how how long on the cross? How many hours? Do you know? Give or take three. In three hours, God's eternal and infinite wrath was exhausted on the Son Against your sin and my sin. What would take you and I, apart from Christ, an eternity in hell to suffer under. In other words, we would never satisfy God's wrath. Hell is unending because God's wrath is eternal and infinite. And you say, well, then how could Jesus satisfy it? Because Jesus was God. Jesus was the infinite God dying on the cross, absorbing the infinite wrath of the Father. And so, yes, it was three hours. But what happened in that three hours was so much bigger than just the Savior bleeding out and suffocating to death with a flayed open back on a splintered piece of wood. It was the father's full wrath exhausted on the son. A verse that talks about this is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, okay, for your sake and my sake, he, the father, made him, the son, to be sin. Your sin and my sin. The sins of the past week, the sins of the past month, the sins of the the last 24 hours. God made the son to be that sin, our sin, who knew no sin. He was sinless. He was guiltless. So that in him, in that perfect sacrifice, we might become the righteousness of God. It it breaks down two ways. Here's how he satisfied the old covenant demands on us. The first is this. He credited us with his righteousness. Romans 8, 4, in order that Jesus was sent in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, we get his righteousness. The old covenant demanded perfection. Jesus came and nailed it. Jesus lived a perfectly obedient, perfectly righteous life and then credited that righteousness to us. So he's dealt with the demand of perfection by living that perfectly obedient life and then giving it to us free of charge, entrusting it to us, crediting it to us. And then what did he do? Well, what does the old covenant demand of us? It demands death. And that's what he did next. Romans three twenty-five. There's a verse in each of these verses that we're going to look at, a word in each of these verses that we're going to look at that I want to focus in on. Whom God put forward, verse 25, as a Propitiation, that's the word there. And it's a big word. It, it means this the satisfaction of God's wrath. Okay? To propitiate something is to satisfy it. So God put Jesus forward as a propitiation, notice, by his blood. What was he satisfying? He was satisfying God's wrath. God's wrath against what? Against all of our sins. Every sin that you've committed up until tonight, y'all, God, God's wrath was propitiated, it was satisfied as Jesus died on the cross for us. How about Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17? Therefore he had to be made like his brothers Jesus did in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make there's the word again, propitiation for the sins of his people. That he would be like us, identify with us, and be able to satisfy God's wrath for us. First John chapter 2, verse 2. He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is the one who satisfies God's wrath. 1 John 4:10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be for the purpose that he would be the propitiation for our sins, that he would satisfy God's wrath against our sins. The whole point, y'all, is this. Jesus' death took care of your past. All of the sins that you've committed up until this point. Jesus died so that the old covenant would no longer have a claim on you. Jesus died so that you would no longer have any condemnation or guilt. Let me ask you, who has, has ever done anything even remotely close to that for you? Some of y'all in this room are ready to devote your life to a cute guy or girl that winks at you from across the room. You're going to be like, I'm all in, let's go, let's get married tomorrow. How about Jesus? How about we devote our lives to Christ because he died for us, satisfied God's wrath against our sins, and credited us with his righteousness. Because of his dealt, our past is taken care of. Because of his death, rather, our past is taken care of. But you'll notice in verse 15, you may be thinking, yeah, but I thought this was about the new covenant. Well, it is about the new covenant because his death not only took out the old covenant, it also brought in or ushered in the new covenant. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Uh, Take your Bibles, turn back just one chapter to to Hebrews chapter 8, and let's look at verses 10 through 12 together. Hebrews 8, 10 through 12. He's quoting from the Old Testament from Jeremiah 31 here when he quotes about the, old, the, the new covenant. And here it is in chapter 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. There's measures of this covenant that are being fulfilled currently, and measures of this covenant that we're still awaiting ultimate fulfillment of. But what an amazing time this is going to be when it's finally realized, right? When we are amongst people who we don't have to say, hey, have you heard about Jesus? Nathan's going to be out of a job because he's not going to be able to train anyone for evangelism because nobody's going to need to evangelize anymore. That's what the text is saying here because everyone is going to know the Lord. And I want that day. Or how about that that last promise there? I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I want that day too, don't you? This is the new covenant. This is the new covenant that the the author of Hebrews is talking about here when he says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. That Jesus is the key to this being fully realized. And no, we're not there already fully. it's, It's beginning to unfold. We're beginning to enjoy some of the benefits here. And it has everything to do with the death that Jesus died. The death dealt with the Old Testament, the death ushered in, or the Old Covenant, the death ushered in the New Covenant. This New Covenant is good news for us, but it does demand the death of Christ, because without it, there is no New Covenant. Look at verses 16 and 17 in Hebrews chapter 9. It says, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not enforced, as long as the one who made it is alive. I don't love the ESV editor's decision here. The word for will and the word for covenant, same words, okay? 33 times in the New Testament, that word appears. The only two times it's not translated covenant is right here in verses 16 and 17 in Hebrews chapter 9. Every other time, it's translated covenant, 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 covenant. And we get here, and the editors decided, well, let's make it say will instead of covenant. And not without reason, as you read verse 17, for a will takes effect only at death, since it's not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Okay? You see where they're going with this. But I think they're reading a westernized interpretation of this passage back into the text, when I don't think that's what the author had in mind. Yes, if your parents have a will, that will doesn't go into effect until your parents die. Right? Okay? But death was also a key part of making a covenant as well. And you say, well wait a minute, what good would it do for the, the covenant-making party to to die in order to, to enact the covenant? Well, the covenant-making party didn't die. What happened was, much like the sacrificial system, there were animals that were sacrificed as a symbol of what would happen if the covenant parties didn't hold up their agreement. You remember back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 10, the Abrahamic covenant, he brought him all these, cut them in half, these animals, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And then God cuts the covenant with Abraham. But these animals are being cut. These animals are being killed. These animals are being sacrificed. Death is taking place in order to ratify the covenant that's that's there between God and Abraham at the time. Or in Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 18, it says this, and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. Okay, so that's why I think he's still talking about a covenant, and not a will. Because death was necessary for a covenant to be enacted. The death of the one making the covenant. Here's the thing, that most of the time was represented by an animal sacrifice that animal stood in for the one making the covenant and the one making the covenant said i will be like this animal if i fail to keep my part but when we come to the new covenant the one making the covenant did die to ratify the covenant But before we get there, look at verses 18 through 21 as our writer keeps going in Hebrews chapter 9. He says, therefore, because of this, because look, because death is required for a covenant to take place. Notice in verse 18, he returns to the word covenant there. Again, I, I don't get why we threw will in in verses 16 and 17. It should be covenant. Verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. The first covenant being the old covenant. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all its vessels used for worship. So blood was necessary, death was necessary at the enacting of the first covenant, right? In fact, we can read about that if you're interested. Maybe you're not, but tough. It's up on the screen. It says this, Moses came and told all the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord made with you in accordance with all these words. In other words, Israel, if you fail to hold up your end of the bargain by, keeping, by not keeping all that the Lord has commanded you, you will be like these animals. So Moses wasn't just being gratuitous by throwing blood on people. He was trying to help them to understand the gravity of what they were doing. A, a covenant was a serious thing. And so it is, in chapter 9, that a death is required in order for the new covenant to go into act, action as well. Hebrews 9.15, therefore he's the mediator of a new covenant since a death has occurred. How, why is Jesus the mediator of a new covenant? Because a death has occurred. That redeems them from their transgressions committed under the first covenant but I want you to notice the language the author uses there in verse 15. I know we're we're past verse 15, but just bear with me for a second. Therefore he, what? Was? Used to be? Once was? What does it say? He is the mediator of the new covenant. Presently, he is the mediator of the new covenant. Presently, Jesus is your mediator. Presently, he is where? He is before the Father right now interceding on your behalf, right? It's, it's the language that called to mind for all of the, the readers who had come out of this system, the, the temple and the Holy of Holies and the high priest going in on the day of atonement with the sacrifice, where he would go in there and put the blood on the mercy seat and then everybody was waiting for him to come out because they wanted to see him come out because then they would know that it worked, but then again, it's, it's done at that point. And then if they sin after that, then they're waiting and they're having to bring more sacrifices again because the high priest is no longer in before the presence of God at the mercy seat. Well, guess what? Your high priest currently, presently, is in before the Father in his presence, interceding for you. And he's not going anywhere anytime soon. He is the anchor that is behind the curtain, right? And he's gone, not with the blood of bulls and, and calves and goats, but with his own blood like we talked about last week, to secure an eternal redemption for us. See, Jesus as the mediator of this new covenant, here's what that means for y'all. His death that freed us from the old covenant, yeah, you can rejoice tonight that your sins, all of your sins up to this point are dealt with. Paid, the penalty has paid. But here's the other thing that you can rejoice over tonight, that is this, your mediator is still on the job. Jesus is still mediating for you. Jesus is still interceding for you, which means the the sins that maybe you have even committed tonight as you sat there and thought, man, this guy, I just wish he would shut up. Man, I can't believe the Cowboys lost, and I've got a sports idol that I need to put to death in my heart, right? Spoiler alert, they, they lost. Nobody's surprised. But here's what that means, y'all. The the sins that you've committed tonight, the sins that you will commit tomorrow, the sins that you will commit this week, here's the good news for you, that you have a mediator who is presently before the Father. It's this, your sins are presently covered. That's point number two tonight. Jesus' death covers your present. Look, it's dealt with your past, and that's good news. But even better news, even, is that it's, it's dealing with your present. It's covering your present. You don't need another sacrifice like the Israelites did. You don't need another high priest like the Israelites did. You don't need to help Jesus out with this either, y'all. Sometimes we feel like, oh, man, I, I, I need to prove to God that he made a good investment in me when he saved me. No, you don't. Look, Jesus' blood is covering your sins currently, presently, right now because he's still behind the curtain. He's still behind the curtain. In fact, that's what we read right in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Man, we have this is a sure and steadfast hope, an anchor to the soul that Jesus is still behind the curtain. Y'all, that is good news for you tonight because that means he is presently interceding for you, which is why the author says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, more good news for you tonight. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is part and parcel of the new covenant. The death that occurred is Jesus' death. Jesus' death allowed him to enter into the holy places to plead his righteousness on your behalf, and he's not coming out until all of us are saved. But again, none of this is possible unless he dies. None of this is possible without his death. Because look, you remember, it's been a little while, but verses 18 through 21 in chapter 9, where Moses was throwing the blood on the people. Look at, at verse 21 again. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's why the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was such a necessary part of an Israelite's existence. Because they kept sinning. And God in his covenant love for his people kept accepting these animals as atoning sacrifices, as representatives, as substitutes for them. Because blood is what purifies. And that's why if Christ doesn't die, you and I are still in our sins and we have no high priest who's behind the curtain for us right now. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves, the heavenly sanctuary, that needed to be consecrated with a better sacrifice than these. Now the author's not saying that there was some impurity about heaven. He's just saying ceremonially, as Jesus entered into the heavenly sanctuary, He needed to enter in with blood, just like the earthly high priest needed to enter in with blood. But the blood that he brought before the the throne of the Father in heaven needed to be far greater than the blood that Aaron ever brought in before the mercy seat of the ark. And if he was going to do that, it needed to be his own blood. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. The diagram of the temple, think back to that, right? That's a copy of what's going on in heaven, what's really going on, but into heaven itself he's entered. Now to appear in the presence of God. Notice this, on our behalf. On our behalf. Nor did he go to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all. At the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Y'all, the good news is that Jesus isn't coming out from the curtain anytime soon. He's there, He's behind the veil, He's in the presence of the Father, He's with God, and He's pleading His righteousness on our behalf, as the text says. For you and for me. Tonight, Christian, if you sit in here and Jesus is your Lord and Savior, right now where you sit tonight, he sits as well, but he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you, pleading not your track record this last week, not going to the, to the Father going, God, look at, look at it, that's awesome. Look how much they read their Bible this past week. It's like January, what, 16th, and they haven't missed a day of DBR yet. That's awesome. God, aren't they impressive? No, Jesus is out there going, God, they're mine. My blood covers them. The sacrifice that I brought has paid for their sins. The righteousness that I earned by being perfectly obedient to the law, it's theirs. They're mine because you've given them to me, Father. He's there and he's appeared there on our behalf. Now to appear, verse 24, in the presence of God on our behalf. Y'all, I want you to put your name in there. On, instead of our behalf, put your name in there. Now to appear in the presence of God on, on PJ's behalf. Because I, I need him there, y'all. On Nathan's behalf, on Amy's behalf, on Stephanie's behalf, on TR's behalf, on Daniel's behalf, on Leo's behalf, put your name in there and feel what this is talking about. That Jesus is there for you. For you. Jesus died to bring you into the blessings of the new covenant. So that presently you have a mediator who is interceding for you with his own blood. But again, unless we have the death of Jesus, we don't have any of that. Without the death of Jesus, there's no new covenant. There's no confidence in our standing before God. There's no eternal redemption. There's no church. There's no gospel. There's no Christmas. There's no Easter. We're still going to the temple with our bulls and goats. But as it is, we do have that better sacrifice, that better high priest, and he's not going to leave interceding for us until he's delivered all that the Father has entrusted to him. But if we keep reading in the text, he is going to leave the presence of the Father again someday. He is going to come out from behind the, the curtain again someday. And that's where our author turns his focus to next. Look at verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, by the way, that just, if you're looking for a verse that flies in the face of the whole belief in reincarnation, you're welcome. Um, Hebrews 9.27. It exists for a man to live once and then comes judgment. Okay? Also, Rob Bell wrote a book a few decades ago called Love Wins, uh, where he said that, that uh, hell is just a place where people go until the love of God melts their heart and then they go to be with the Lord. Hebrews nine twenty seven has a major problem with that, because it exists for man to, to 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 die once, and after that comes judgment. But the point of our passage tonight is this in verse twenty eight. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time. Not he says to deal with sin, why? Because he already did that at his first appearance. But instead, why is he coming back? Why is he going to come out from the veil? He's coming out from the veil to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. To ultimately deliver us. The fulfillment of the old covenant was Christ's life and death. The fulfillment of the new covenant will be our joining him forever in the final realization of our salvation. Yes, You might be here tonight going, wait a minute, I thought I was already saved if I'm in Christ. Yes, you are in a sense already saved. It's as good as done. You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of the inheritance that we will one day acquire. You are saved. However, there's a sense in which you are also being saved in the sense that you are by God's power through the Spirit being delivered through this world. First Peter says you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you are in a sense being saved as well. And then there will ultimately be the time when you will be saved, which is when you will finally be free from this world, finally be free from the sins, finally be free from this flesh and this broken body, and you will be with the Lord. And that will be that final ultimate deliverance, that final ultimate salvation. Well, Jesus is ultimately going to come back for that ultimate deliverance, that ultimate salvation. See, Jesus' death has dealt with your past, the penalty that you owe God, satisfied at the cross. Jesus' death has covered your present sins. He is right now before the Father. In his presence, he is pleading his righteousness, his meritorious sacrifice on your behalf. But as I said, this is also about your future. Because Jesus' death will ultimately result in your final salvation. Our final point tonight is this Jesus' death has secured your future. It's dealt with your past, it covers your present, and it's secured your future. alluded to it already but every year there was anticipation there was an eagerness as as the priests gathered in the outer chamber there because they couldn't all go into the holy of holies only the high priest could but they would gather in the outer chamber waiting to know whether or not the high priest was going to come back out and here's the deal if he didn't come back out it's not because he's all of a sudden jesus and he's just permanently behind the veil it's because he did something that he shouldn't have done and if he did something that he shouldn't have done in the presence of the glory of God, you need a new high priest if you catch my drift. So everybody's waiting because they wanted the high priest who took the, the sin offering in there, not just for his own sins, but remember, for the sins of all of the, the nation, right? Day of Atonement. And they're waiting, and they, they want him to come out. They're, they're, they're on pins and needles going, okay, hey, do you remember this taking this long last year? Maybe he pulled a muscle in there. Are you, Should we call it? Are we allowed to call his name out? Should we say anything? We just wait? Okay. Do you know what time it is? They're waiting for him. And then when he finally did come out, imagine the joy, the celebration, right? In fact, it was a celebration. It was a feast. It was like, this is so good. God accepted the sin offering on behalf of the people. Our sins have been atoned for. And the celebration therein, well, let me ask you a question. If they celebrated that much over an earthly high priest who went in year after year after year after year, how much more should we be celebrating when we know that our high priest is going to come back for us for our final and ultimate deliverance? How eager should we be for that? Christ will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save. Again, personalize this. To save PJ, who is eagerly waiting for him. Put your name in. And think about this fact that Jesus is one day going to come back. He's going to come out from behind the veil. Come out from behind the curtain to save you. To deliver you. Who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? I remember my wedding day. I got married at this old church down in in San Diego, and this church kind of had this like hallway is being way too generous of a term, but it was towards the front of the church, and it was this, it opened up so you could walk out into the front of the church, and that's where me and my groomsmen were waiting, and we got married in August in the summertime in San Diego, and there was no air conditioning, and I was wearing this like nasty polyester um, tux. No, I mean, I I probably looked okay, but um, it was hot and it doesn't breathe, and it was uncomfortable back there. But more than all that, y'all, I was waiting for my bride. And so I remember being back there going, okay, can we go now? Can we go out? Can we go out? Can, can we go to the front? How about now? And we had a family friend stand up and give the, the welcome and prayer, and he it was like the longest <laughs> ever. And I was like, this is awesome, but please sit down. I, I just want my bride. And I remember then going out there, and I, we lined up at the front, and then, like, I love my wife's friends, but I didn't want to see them, and they just kept coming down the aisle. I was like, okay, can we just get, can you guys just all come at one time, like the groomsmen did? It's just way more efficient that way. <laughs> and even, like, the cute flower girl and, and ring bearer, as they came down, I'm like, this is awesome, but get out of my way. <laughs> and then the door shut, In that, what, 10, 15, 20 seconds some of the longest of my life. Talk about eagerly waiting. Doors open up and there's no life. If you're wondering, I cried like a baby. I did. Because I was so excited for that moment. You guys, are you eagerly waiting for Jesus like that? I get that you're at a disadvantage because you're like, well, I I haven't been married. Brandon, you will know this in like two weeks, three weeks. You will know, and you'll be like, I get it. And I want you to think about that up there just for a split second and then think about your wife. But I want you to go, I get it. I love Jesus this much. And then just focus on your wife. But guys, are you that eager for Jesus to come back? for his return, hoping for it, looking for it. Because again, he's died in order to secure that future for us. Do you want that? For some of you tonight, that's the question. Do you want this, Jesus? My guess is if you had a doctor tell you you've got cancer, Hey, but the good news is it is treatable. My guess is you would want to know what the cure is. You would say, doc, tell me. What is it? What must I do to eradicate this so that it never comes back? Well, if tonight you have not dealt with your sin, then God's word is the doctor saying, Your prognosis is not good, but there's good news in that there's hope because it's treatable. Your prognosis right now is that you are a sinner, and without that dealt with, you are facing an eternity apart from God's goodness and love and kindness and compassion. Instead, you are looking at an eternity in the presence of God's wrath and justice and anger and judgment. But the good news is you don't have to because there's a treatment and his name is Jesus and he's died in your place on that cross where in three hours he took the full punishment. A punishment that you could never pay even in an an eternal amount of time in hell. Jesus took that for you. God loves you so much that he punished his son for those sins that you've committed. And if you will trust in that Savior, then that disease called sin, your past, your present, your future, eradicated. And you can join the ranks that are eagerly waiting for Jesus to come back. Y'all, if that's you and you have made that decision and you've trusted Jesus, are you looking for Him? Are you waiting for Him? Are you eager for Him to come back? Be thankful for that. Let's pray. Lord, the hope that we have in the gospel. Admittedly, God, we undersell it. We take it for granted. We think about it far too little. And when we do, God, we undersell it. Lord, what an amazing reality, a glorious truth it is that our Savior has died to deal with our past to free us from the demands of the old covenant and that currently he is before the father he is with you he is at your right hand he is interceding for us right now as the one who is ushered in the new covenant and Lord he will one day come back again not to deal with sin because he's already done that but to come back to, to deliver us to save us ultimately to bring us to be with him who are eagerly awaiting his return. And so God, make us a people eagerly awaiting the return of our Savior. And in the meantime, God, establish us firmly entrenched in the reality of the good news of what Jesus' death means for us. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.